Hello, welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series 7, The Root Vices. This series looks at the seven root vices from which other sins grow and identifies ways we can cut the root vices and become more like Jesus. In studying these seven vices, we're trying to encourage to come from a bunch of different ways. As Greg said, we're doing devotions each week, you know, each day of the week. Uh, we're trying to have a consistent pattern to help us understand what these are. There's a lot of little subtle things going on each week. Obviously, we've been picking a song to call us back, uh, some of which are you've probably known, some of which you haven't. But uh, the idea behind that is that we hear and see about these things all the time. Actually, the colors every week, believe it or not, there is a color that's associated with every vice. Today, since we're studying wrath, is why we are surrounded in red. Uh, that is the traditional vice and color. Um, because we're just wanting us to be able to recognize that there are things that we see around us each and every day that can remind us of uh, what we're doing as we're going through. And again, the ultimate purpose is not for the vice that we are putting off, but the virtue we're putting on so that we can see and be more like who Jesus is. So today, our text is going to be out of James chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 19 and 20. Uh, it's there on the card in front of you that will always be up on the screen. Uh, the text today is actually out of the English Standard Version uh, because I like the way it translated the Greek a little bit better. I'll talk about why in just a few minutes and what that means. But I'll have up on the screen with, with all the other verses, I'll tell you whatever version it's coming out of. Some of them will be out of the NIV. But uh, for our text, we're going to use the English Standard Version. So James chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. Hear now the word of the loving, patient, merciful God. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Many years ago, there was a movie called The Mission. It came out in the 1980s, and uh, it actually won an Academy Award for, I think, cinematography. But the, the movie is a fictional account that's based on a, a number of different historical people, but it tells the story of a Jesuit missionary named Father Gabriel who was starting a mission among the natives. And when he actually is going in there, these natives have killed every other missionary who has come before him. And he begins the mission among the natives. And at the same time, we learn that there is a, a mercenary or slaver named Rodrigo Mendoza. He's actually played by Robert De Niro. Uh, Father Gabriel's played by Jeremy Irons. Uh, but Rodrigo Mendoza is a slaver and a mercenary, so he's not a good guy. And in fact, he comes back and you find out that he is in love with the woman who is his fiance but she tells him that she's actually in love with his half-brother, Felipe. And then he catches them in bed with one another, and in wrath and anger, he kills his half-brother. And he then spirals into a depression, and Father Gabriel comes down out of the mountains, and he meets with him to talk to him, even though they seem to be enemies, and he tells him that God in his mercy can still forgive him. And so... Uh, Rodrigo at this point uh, is going to do penance and what he actually ends up doing is taking all of his armor and he drags it through the jungle and there's this painful difficult scene as he's got to climb up this sheer cliff hundreds of feet 
with it hanging off. And another Jesuit at one point played by Liam Neeson actually cuts it off and he won't accept it. He keeps tying it up because he's going to drag this armor all the way to the top. And when he gets to the top, some of the Indians whose relatives he's killed and he's enslaved, one of them runs up and threatens to slit his throat, but he just lets the guy because he's a broken man. And uh, the Indian ends up cutting the pack off and it falls down the waterfall and he is free and he's a changed man. He takes vows as a missionary at that point and he, and he agrees to obedience and he begins to live a very uh, life very different than what he had been before. And then... Politics intervenes, and because of a treaty between Spain and Portugal that I won't go into, it actually is a historical treaty, the mission is being forced to be handed over to Portugal, who's going to allow slavery, and so they're going to shut the mission down. And the question is, how do you respond to that? And Father Gabriel, the original Jesuit, says, I'm going to be a priest is what I'm going to do. And so he's actually leading mass as the soldiers come in to take over. Father Rodrigo discovers that even after all of this, the wrath that had been there returns. And he fights by going back to the way he normally does. And I'll let you watch the movie and see what happens. But it brings up a huge question for us. What is wrath and anger? And is it ever justified for us to act in anger? Um, and what virtues are different than wrath and what practices would help us to practice those virtues as opposed to wrath? That's what we're going to try and undertake today to talk about because I think we'll find like Father uh, Rodrigo, or, uh, Rodrigo Mendoza in the movie The Mission, wrath is a very hard vice to put away. We think it's gone and then we're amazed how it can flare up when we perceive injustice. So let's talk about the problem of wrath. In our text, notice James tells us, notice this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Now it's got the word anger here. I'm going to be using the word wrath. They're really interchangeable words. And so the, historically it was oftentimes the vice was referred to as wrath, so I'll use it. But there's, there's not different words. Whenever you see anger, it basically means wrath although I'll kind of be using wrath a little bit to say unjustified anger. As we'll see in a few moments, there, there, we, we are allowed to have anger at certain times. But notice here what James tells us is we're called to be slow to anger. We're supposed to be quick to listen, quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to exercise anger or wrath. Now what's interesting is this may not come to your mind very quickly, but in James's uh, initial audience, this immediately brings to mind a text out of the Old Testament because this is the description of who God is. In Exodus chapter 34, verse 6, Moses is seeing the glory of God, and as God passes by Moses, he says these words, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's the word hased I've talked about before. God's covenant love and mercy that pursues us and forgives us. And so God passes by and notice he, he pronounces his name Yahweh twice and he describes his character. He says, I'm merciful, I'm gracious, and I am slow to anger. But I abound 
in chesed, in covenant love and faithfulness and mercy. And so James here is hearkening back to this text, which is one of the the most important text to Jews in the Old Testament. I mean, this defined who their God was. And James is saying, look, Yahweh revealed his name and character, and he is slow to anger. He is merciful. He is gracious. He abounds in love. And you are the image of God. So act like the image of God. You you can't be like God. You can't be like Jesus who is slow to anger and then you be quick to wrath. Because it's a contradiction in who we are. And James goes on and gives the reason, and this is why I I like the ESV translation. Notice he says in verse 20, be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for, I'm going to tell you why you need to be slow to anger, for the anger of man, our wrath, does not produce the righteousness of God. So notice in this text, there's a juxtaposition here between man and God, between our anger and God's righteousness. And James is telling us that there's something about our anger and our wrath that does not equate and produce the righteousness of God. Now, exactly what is meant by that phrase, and it's very literally in the Greek, is the righteousness of God. The the question is exactly what does he mean by that? The, the NIV, the 1984 version, actually had, it does not produce the righteous life that God desires, which seems to indicate, in other words, if I'm becoming angry, I'm not acting in righteousness as God would desire for me to act. And that is certainly part of what I think is being gotten at here, but I think it's actually broader than that, and that's why I like the way the ESV just left it open it doesn't produce the righteousness of God because the real point is it doesn't produce God's justice regarding sin either the word righteousness and the word justice are the same word in Greek and actually in Hebrew and we sometimes fool ourselves into thinking when I used to struggle with anger with my children if they were misbehaving my foolish thought is if I get angry it'll produce righteousness in them but it doesn't It might make them in the moment snap to and do what dad wants, but it's not producing the righteousness of God. And so it's a much broader concept here, and I think the whole thing is in view in this verse. Our wrath does not promote God's justice or his righteousness in us or in others. In fact, what it promotes is sin in us and in others. When I would fool myself into thinking my wrath is going to get somebody to behave the way they ought to behave, all it really did was produce sin in me and usually sin in them. They might do what I wanted in the short term, but it was creating attitudes and bitterness and problems in them that were not the righteousness of God. And so James tells us this is why you want to be like God. This is why you want to be slow to anger. Because there's something about your anger and about your wrath. It does not work righteousness in you, and it doesn't work righteousness in the other person. In fact, we're going to see over and over in Scripture, what it does is it inflames sin in both. So that would lead to the question then, when James tells us this, can wrath ever be righteous? Is is it ever okay for us to be angry? And notice here, in James 1.19, the text actually says we are to be slow to 
anger. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. So it's not an absolute prohibition on being angry. He does, he does not say never be angry, but he does say it better have a long fuse. You better be slow to become angry. Now, this is obviously not an absolute prohibition on wrath or anger, but it is very, very dangerous. There's something when we're told be slow, we're never told be slow to love. We're never told be slow to be generous. We are told you better be slow to be angry. And the reason for that is because anger is dangerous. And the fact is, usually, it's sinful. Most times I've ever practiced anger, it's been sinful. And so, actually, the early desert fathers who, in ruminating, came up with this list of vices, a number of them just said human beings should never become angry and wrathful. Because we're so sinful, the odds of you actually practicing righteous wrath are kind of like you finding a unicorn. It's just, it's not going to happen. So don't go there. You're just better off not to do it. But there were others, like for example, Thomas Aquinas, who said, no, that, you know, God does practice wrath and anger. God is not prideful. God does not practice lust or greed. But the scripture does say God does become angry. God does practice wrath. And therefore, Anger and wrath in itself is not necessarily sinful. But here's the problem. It's exercising it correctly. Aristotle, the ancient Greek philosopher, said this. Anyone can become angry. Amen? That's easy. But to be angry with the right person, to the right degree, at the right time, for the right purpose, and in the right way, that's not easy. That's true. That's wisdom from Aristotle right there. Easy to get angry, but to get angry in all of those right ways is not easy. See, I could be angry, but not at the right person. I could be angry with the right person, but more angry than I ought to be. I could be angry with the right person of the right degree, but not at the right time. I could be angry with the right person, right degree, right time, but not for the right purpose. It could be because you did something that I just didn't like. So there are all these ways that my anger can go wrong. And so we have to be very careful with it. And it's not just Aristotle says this. Paul actually did the same thing. In Ephesians chapter 4, where Paul is going through vices and virtues and telling us to put off these vices and the virtues to put on, he gives this statement in Ephesians 4, 26 and 27. He says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. So notice here, anger is closely associated with sin. It easily gives way. We, once again, we have no statement from Paul, be gentle but do not sin. We have no statement, be loving but do not sin. But we do have a statement, be angry but don't sin. When Paul's telling us, he's saying this thing is so dangerous, it's so likely to blow up in your face, you better be very careful with it. And he not only tells us don't give in to sin, notice he says don't let the sun go down on your anger. He's in modern parlance, he's saying, you better keep a tight leash on your anger. When the sun goes down, time to let it go. Because you are not able to let anger grow. 
Because if it does, notice it's going to be sin. And then notice he gives one final warning. He says, don't give the devil a foothold. And this is related right back to our anger and our wrath. There's something about the way you and I respond to wrath that very often it produces sin and it gives a wide open door to the devil. And everybody in here who's ever given in to their temper says, we've all seen it. Man, it is just an open doorway. And Paul says, you better keep that thing on a tight leash. This is why I can understand why the Desert Fathers just said, just don't go there. Just put a padlock on that door, put something in front of it, and don't go there. Because in all likelihood, it's going to lead nowhere good. Now, how do we determine righteous anger from unrighteous wrath? Uh, Dr. DeYoung, Rebecca DeYoung, has a little table where she describes the two. And I want you to notice here, righteous anger versus wrath. Notice they have different objects or aims. Righteous anger is about justice, but wrath is about selfishness. In other words, the real reason I get wrath, if we're really honest, isn't about establishing the justice of God in the universe. It's about the fact that you cut me off in traffic and you ticked me off. That's really what it's about. They got very different aims. And I want you to notice, see, it's one thing. I may be able to exercise anger and wrath if I see somebody else being treated unjustly. But if it's me personally, man, it, yes, exactly, it's on. And it's usually not righteousness that's on. It's usually selfishness because I'm back to envy and pride. How dare you do that to me? Now, notice it's also the expression. Righteous anger is proportionate to the offense but wrath is disproportionate. And we've all noticed this. You just get angry at something. It's like, why are you getting so upset about this? That is usually a sign. Well, it's not because the justice of God in the universe has been circumvented. No. You're all out of proportion and anger here because it's something to do with you. And then notice that the expression of righteous anger is necessary for reestablishing justice. Sin does call forth a righteous response. But usually sinful wrath is ineffective and it's not necessary. I just want to do it because it's what I'm feeling inside. I'm boiling and I want to express this. Now this is what she said. I have no experience with this, so I'm going to take her word with what anger is like because any of you who know, this is not a vice I have struggled with at all. So how... How is, are we to look at wrath? What does it mean for us? What, what is this root vice of wrath? Well, let me give a definition as I've been giving each week um, and talking about how it's a disordered love. Wrath is a disordered love that desires justice to be enacted in my time, manner, and degree rather than in God's. At its best, wrath is about justice. Now, I almost wouldn't want to put quotes around justice there because part of the problem is in a disordered love, very often what I'm calling justice is not really justice. It's really something else. But even if it is about justice, at its best, the problem with wrath is it's my justice. It's my time, my manner, my degree, and how is God having the temerity to not do it the way I see that it ought to be done? That's what wrath is built upon. It is once again, my desire to be God. 
just like it was with pride and just like we saw last week with envy. Envy is because, God, how dare you give that person those gifts, those abilities, those callings when they should have come to me. Wrath is, God, how dare you not be dealing with this the way and the timing and the manner, the degree which I think it ought to be dealt with. And when you're not, man, I can feel it rising up. I can feel it coming on to me. And so that's what's happening. God's promised that he's going to make all things right. Every sin in this universe ever will be dealt with. In God's time, in God's manner, and in God's degree. But what wrath says is God's timing, manner, and degree, have you ever noticed they just oftentimes don't line up with ours? They just don't. And that's what creates the problem for you and for me. And so wrath is ultimately our expression of frustration that the universe is not running the way I want it to run. See, I like when God is slow to anger to me. But I'm just not always glad that he's slow to anger to somebody else. I want him to deal with them now, preferably. And that's where wrath is rooted in. Now, what it causes me in my identity, let's think about not just the the order, but my identity is that I seek to find my identity in circumstances as I desire them rather than God's providential ruling of the world in my life. See, one of the things that happens here is, is circumstances as I desire them. As I look back, very often when I've exercised wrath in my life, it really wasn't anything to do with big justice. I was just frustrated. The computer's not working the way the computer ought to work. And nobody who works with me better say an amen right now. I can get irritated. I remember one time years ago I came in and like the day before somebody had backed into our car, done something that was kind of big and I was just like, ah, no big deal. The next day I came in and I had a bunch of stuff in my arms and a gallon of milk dropped down onto the ground and it busted open. And I went off in a rage, kicked it, acted like a fool. And Linda sat there and looked at me and said, what is wrong with you? I mean, it's like a $2 gallon of milk. But see, it it didn't matter because I said, I couldn't do anything about the person hitting my car. He said, but I could have stopped this. And the fact that it wasn't the way I wanted it to be, man, rage came out. It just came out. Y'all know what I'm talking about, don't you? See, that's where my identity is. My identity is the universe ought to be the way that I think the universe ought to be. But here's a clue. It's not. It's just not. And so when it's not, my response tells me, am I really in submission to God's sovereignty in my life and in the world or not? Oh, man, it's easy to sing. You cause all things to work to your glory and my good. And then a gallon of milk drops, and that song is long gone. And this isn't of your glory or my good, and I'm going to express righteous, holy wrath. And we've all been there. It's because the circumstances aren't the way I want. When God's not running things as we think he should, you, you, all I need is a blood pressure cuff. And I can tell how submitted I am to the will of God right at that moment. 
So let me give a biblical example of this. The prophet Jonah. This, originally, I was even going to use this as the text, but I'll just use it as an example. In Jonah chapter 3, you all remember the famous story. Jonah's called to go to Nineveh, and he doesn't go. And you remember, he gets, a, he gets the world's first submarine ride, courtesy of a large fish that God has prepared. And he spit out in Nineveh, and he preaches, and Jonah has a better response than Billy Graham, who just died, ever had at one of his crusades, and you would think it would make him happy. But Jonah's not happy. And so we read then, starting in Jonah chapter 3, verse 10, and rolling into chapter 4, we read this. When God saw what they, the Ninevites, did, and how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. And then, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That's why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. How did Jonah know that? Because God told Moses that's who he was. See, he's quoting Exodus 34, 6. He said, you've already told me what you were like. Everybody thinks Jonah fled to Tarshish because he was afraid. It had nothing to do with him being afraid of the Ninevites. He fled to Tarshish because he wanted God to fire them up. And if I go there and preach, you're the kind of God who will show mercy. I don't want you showing mercy to them. So, literally, you told me go east, I'm going west. You told me go up, I'm going down. I'm going, the, the Hebrew in the book of Jonah is circle. He's literally going as far in the opposite direction. He's told to go up to Tarshish, and he goes down to the seacoast, down onto a boat, down inside the hull. He's going down, 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 as far away as he can get from God. And Tarshish is the exact opposite direction of Nineveh. He is not going where he's supposed to go. He says, and this is why. Because I knew you were going to mess this thing up. And so notice how he continues. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Now, you all know when you're in that minute, what's my answer back? You're darn tootin' I do right to be angry, God. And I can give you Bible verses about how they're behaving over there. And then God has to, you remember, he sends him a little plant, you know? And Jonah gets all worried about this plant that dies. And God's like, are you kidding me? There's 120,000 people down here. You want me to torch them. But you're all worked up over this plant. How can that be, Jonah? But see, do you notice what's going on? God's showing mercy rather than judgment. And Jonah is angry. He wants them punished now. And I knew what you were like. I knew that Exodus 34, 6, they made me memorize that thing when I was in Sunday school. And I did not want that for these people. They don't deserve that. And notice what he says is, I would rather die. My identity is so wrapped up in what needs to happen, better off dead than you showing mercy to this people. Now, think about how this fits these definitions we just looked at a minute ago. Wrath's a disordered love that desires justice to be enacted in my time, manner, and degree rather than God's. See, God was going to deal with Nineveh at his time, 
his manner and his degree. But that didn't satisfy Jonah. Jonah had his own timing, manner, and degree. And notice in the identity, my identities and my circumstances as I desire them rather than God's providential ruling of the world in my life. And that's exactly where Jonah's at. God, you're, you're messing this whole thing up. You, you are ruling the universe in a way I do not approve of. And Jonah is angry. He is hot under the collar. And it's, it's kind of funny, except it's sad. Because, boy, can I read that text and say, man, this is me looking in the mirror. This is what I can be like. Now, Let's think about how wrath then expresses itself because this, this thing expresses itself in all kinds of things. Remember the, the logo that we're using, you know? Out of this disordered love and this misplaced identity, it feeds wrath, and then wrath is going to produce all kinds of fruits when we get up to the top. Well, what are some of them? First one is wrath is usually expressed first in speech. We've all seen this. Notice in our text, James 1.19, it says, quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to to anger. Proverbs 15, 1 says, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Speech is very often in Scripture associated with anger and wrath. And the funny thing is, there is a symbiotic relationship. You, you remember what that word means? Symbiotic means something that it's a feedback loop. It goes into itself. The two of them work together. Because here's what happens. Have you ever been in a situation where somebody says or does something and you immediately feel that spike in blood pressure? And you feel the ears turning the same colors all around me up here, red, right? And then you say something. And does that usually calm the situation down? Nope. Man, it is gas on the fire. And then all of a sudden they say something back. And then I'm all calm after that, right? No, 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 no. Now the blood pressure cuff is blowing off my arm. And then there are more words, and then there are more. We've all been in this. See, there's a symbiotic relationship. When wrath starts, it pops right out of the mouth. But the problem is, is rather than dissipating wrath, it fuels more wrath, both in me and in others. That's what it does. Second way that wrath gets expressed is oftentimes just a loss of self-control. Proverbs 29, 11, A fool gives full vent to his anger, but a wise man keeps himself under control. Okay? A gallon of milk falls out of your arm as you're trying to get in the door, and suddenly you're acting in a manner that you just wish 60 minutes would be there to cover and put on TV for everybody to watch. Right? I mean, see, this is what wrath is. It is you give full vent to your emotions. They fly at full force with no restraint. And I hate to say this, but notice what Proverbs says. That, that's a sign of being a fool. Rather than being wise, that's being a fool. And, and let me point out, there's much in our culture right now that says, you know, you've got to express everything. That, that's, that's the path of a fool. If, if I just express whatever, you don't want to know most of what pops into my head. And I don't want to know most of what pops into your head. That's where we hopefully are not fools and we practice restraint. And literally what this says is, that the, the literal Hebrew is that a, a fool uh, give, 
does not control his spirit. He, he lets go his spirit. He gives full vent to his spirit. The, the word anger is not actually in there, but anger is a good, they're interpreting it correctly, what it means. But that's exactly what it is. Rather than controlling our spirit, rather than controlling our emotions and what's going on inside of us, a fool just lets it rip. And that usually produces wrath. But once again, there's a symbiotic relationship. We all know this. I can feel it coming on, and I think if I just explode for just a second, it's going to be like a pressure cooker letting off steam. Is that the way it works? No. When I let go, suddenly there's something weird about wrath. When you express it, you don't have less of it. You just get more. It feeds back into itself, and something about the expression of it makes me angrier than it was before. Because oddly enough, it usually doesn't produce the righteousness of God. It does not fix the situation I'm in. Instead of me being angry, I'm now angry and I have a broken thing that I was working on. Or, which creates more anger, or I'm angry and the person that I'm expressing wrath to is now angry. It just feeds on itself. A third thing, I I speak, I'm losing self-control. It oftentimes leads to strife and many other sins. Proverbs 29, 22 says, A man of wrath stirs up strife, and one given to anger causes much transgression. So notice here, wrath creates strife and arguments. It destroys relationships. How hard is it to be friends with somebody who's just getting angry all the time? I mean, it's just, it's difficult because you know they're going to blow up soon. It's just a matter of time, man. I mean, this thing is going to go off and then everybody better take cover. Okay? It creates dissension. It creates problems. And notice there it says, one given to anger causes much transgression. That again, the ESV is leaving it as oblique as the Hebrew, and I think it's good because it's not just transgression in me. My wrath oftentimes causes transgression in someone else. Have you ever been somewhere where you were perfectly happy and then someone jumps out and starts hollering and fussing and moaning, and then all of a sudden you find yourself behaving like they were? They stirred up transgression inside you. And trust me, there's enough transgression in all of us. We don't need it stirred up. We don't need, but that's exactly what wrath does. It leads to many sins in myself and others. Remember, this is Proverbs 15:1, that a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word, oh, it stirs it up. So that's what's going on. So now there is strife and all kinds of other sin. And so when one person expresses wrath, very how often do things just spiral downward quickly? Somebody has got to say, I'm going to exercise restraint. I'm not going to give full vent to my emotions. I'm going to control my words. That's the only way out of the wrath spiral. But then if it doesn't stop there, what it oftentimes leads to is trying to get revenge. Because eventually, and we all know this, we give enough vent to our rage, and then the the heat dissipates. But see, this is where the old proverb, revenge is a dish best served cold comes in the immediate heat of wrath is gone but you're all the way up in the branches and it's producing revenge and i may not be angry in the moment right now but it's still working it's still there it's current and i'm going to go for revenge that's why paul tells us in romans 12 18 and 19 
if it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Not the strife we were just talking about. Live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. Which, if you want a good paraphrase, it is written, it is mine to avenge, not yours. I will repay, you don't. That's what God's telling us. And so Paul says, I want you to live this way. Watch out, be careful of this. So notice the distinction between our trying to express our wrath to get revenge and trusting in God's own justice and God's own time and manner. And this leads me to take matters in my own hands and I suddenly become a cosmic vigilante. I'm going to deal with this person as I think they ought to be dealt with. And I do it in the name of justice. Now what's interesting, we oftentimes forget because of chapters, but does anybody know where this verse leads to within two more verses? What's Romans 13 about? Romans 13 is about God's civil magistrates who don't bear the sword in vain. They are there to punish evil and wrongdoing. So why is Paul reminding us of this right before he goes into that? See, the attempt for me to revenge is to say, God, you have your plan and manner and person who you have authorized to deal with this injustice, but I'm not waiting for them. I don't need them. I'm a vigilante. I'll deal with it. And Paul's saying, don't do that. Don't do that. God will deal with it, and he has people appointed to deal with it. Man, I used to go over this with my kids all the time. Okay, when that guy said that, and you pick something up and hit him, that was not the right way. You go get a teacher, you come get me, you let the appointed person deal with it. When you picked up something and hit them, all we then had was a fight. Doesn't work. But see, we, we understand that with our kids, and then we grow up and become big kids, and how do we want to act? So there's a reason why it's right before Romans 13. The desire to see justice is good and right. But what we have to do is we have to be willing to wait for God's time, manner, and degree or else wrath takes root and it defiles our heart. So there, is, there are things out there, there is awful, horrible things that are done to people. And justice should be done. And it is right for us to want justice to be done. But we do it the right way. We go to the right people to enact it. We don't become vigilantes. That's just revenge. That's not justice. That's just wrath. Now, if it's left unchecked, Jesus tells us where wrath leads. It leads to murder. Remember in Matthew 5, 21 and 22. You've heard it was said to people long ago, don't murder and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. And again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Notice first off that words and anger are associated again. We're right here back at the beginning. But notice what Jesus says is, look, it's too late when you're all the way down at the fruit of murder. Wrath had taken root a long time before that. And so what the wise man does is you cut the root all the way back. You don't try and wait to the very end. And so they've They've got this, and this, this link with words, because he says, hey, if you start by hollering rock, you fool, and you're violating Proverbs 15, 1, what it does is the whole situation degrades, and you go from harsh 
words would just feed your wrath and you start giving full vent and expression to yourself and and your anger and wrath that goes on and the dissension comes in and the relationship falls apart and then the the heat of the moment dies down but you're still working revenge and the next thing you know murderous thoughts have popped up and sometimes even actions but jesus said it's all the way back at the root but i want you to know there's all kinds of other physical aggression along the way that can pop up and we can be surprised how this works if we have a wrathful spirit and i've shared before you know this is one that i have obviously struggled with okay and it is so easy i i, I want to be clear some of you've heard me even tell the story you know where a couple of times if i felt people were treating my wife inappropriately or threatening my wife the, the godly Brett went into retreat. An ungodly Brett got out and got in front of somebody's face and said, you're about to meet imminent destruction right now, real quick. And, and you best better pack it up and get out of here or you're going to find out you're not all that you think you are. And then, and then my wife would come and I'd put my tail between my legs and <laughs> respond in a better manner than I was. That wrath. I, I was shocked at how it could come out and literally me threatening physical violence with people. Middle of D.C., threatening to snatch a guy out of his car because of the way he's doing something with my wife. Not right. And I'm shocked. And the fact is that the person would have been foolish enough to not turn tail and run, I don't know what I would have done. And don't think it's beyond you. You let wrath take root. I understand this one. This is a vice I wrestled with for years. And I am, I am better now than I was. But this is not one I had to read a, up a bunch on. I, I know this one quite well and how it works. And I can tell you, if you don't cut it at the root, if it doesn't change in your spirit, it is way too late by the time you find yourself in the situation. Way too late. So how do we apply the word? What does this mean? Well, there are a couple of different virtues, and you've got them on the card in front of you. You can do them this week. The first one is exercising self-control, and I'll talk about a practice that will help with that in a minute. But remember what we saw in Proverbs, wrath is a complete venting of our spirit. It's letting things go. It is a uh, venting of that internal rage. But see, that's what the Scripture says a fool does. A wise man keeps self control now here's the good news if you're a believer in jesus christ is self-control is also a fruit of the holy spirit it's not something i have to create on my own the holy spirit is working to do that but let me give a couple of practices that will actually help you exercise self-control number one is to practice silence Okay, because remember, all the way back we saw what's the very first link in the chain usually with wrath? Comes out of my mouth. And see, and here's the thing I've learned, usually at that moment, whatever's going to come out is probably not going to be good. So the best thing is just don't say anything. Silence is a really great exercise to let me let it drop down. It is simply voice of experience here don't trust what's going to pop out of your mouth when you're feeling it what's going to pop out is almost never going to help silence 
is better. Okay? Silence is better. And that is really, let me say, <laughs> this is one my poor wife, when we would have conflict early on in our marriage, Linda would like to retreat and go off by herself and think about it, and I wanted to get it dealt with real quick, so I would follow her around. True, true confessions. Not helpful. Really not helpful. So I've now learned to sit and say, okay, she's retreated to another corner. I'm just going to stay here and, and handle it. And because it always led to further conflict. Okay, and, and we've learned, thankfully, that's one that's long past, long ago dealt with. Silence is better. Second practice is a physical timeout. Okay, like, like we do with our kids. A physical timeout to get away for a few minutes to let your body and your spirit quiet down. Let, let me point out here, this is really important. Compared to the others, Envy would not show up on any medical test, but wrath does. When, when you got wrath going, man, if they put the blood pressure cuff on, they would know. It's there. It has actual physical effects, and we're not Gnostic, as I say all the time. Your body and spirit are intimately connected with one another. And so get away for a time out. Sometimes vigorous, vigorous physical activity helps. There have been times where I just say, you know, back when I used to do a lot of distance running, it's like, well, I bet 10 miles will ease this thing out. And it was amazing. I would come back and I was like, this is not something worth being upset over. Just go run some. Now I prefer to go into the weight room and just put it into weights. But vigorous physical activity really helps because wrath affects your body and your spirit and you have to address both. When that blood pressure is up and high and going, this is where you've got to hear the voice of the Desert Fathers. The, the odds of you responding rightly in that moment are slim to none. So close the mouth, take some time away, and say, I just need to, to let this calm down. Secondly, that's in the moment. Okay, that's right when it first happens, we need to practice those things. But what about after we've gone away? Second factor is practice forgiveness. See, wrath wants our justice now rather than mercy. We love singing about mercy. Oh, my sins, they are many. His mercy is more. And then amazingly enough, you do something I don't like and mercy's out the window. And I want justice See, that, that, that is foolishness. What we need is forgiveness. Anne Lamott, the, the Christian author, actually said, unforgiveness is like drinking rat poison and then waiting for the rat to die. But that's what we do. See, if I've walked away, I practice silence, I walked away, but now I go over here and I nurse this thing, and it runs over in my mind, and I'm thinking about it, and I'm nursing it and doing what they did. That is drinking rat poison and then waiting for the rat to die. It's not going to resolve anything. Instead, what I need to do is practice forgiveness, which means in that moment, what I need to do is consciously confess my own sin and receive God's forgiveness. Because I never, and if you tell me, well, I just couldn't come up with any, then, then you're not thinking very hard. Because we got plenty of our own sin to confess. Where would you and I be without the mercy of God? 
I don't need God's mercy for what I did 20 years ago. I need God's mercy for what I did 20 seconds ago, very often 20 nanoseconds ago. It's current. And I confess my own sins. Focus on me and how I need the mercy of God. And it's, it's very hard to be asking God for mercy to me while I'm asking him to torch someone else. The two just don't go together. They don't go together. And then I offer forgiveness verbally in prayer. Rather than nursing what that person did, I say, God, like Jesus, Father, forgive them. God, extend mercy to them. God, would you please show the same kindness, the same chesed, the same steadfast love and mercy you show me, would you please show it to them? And stay there in prayer until that comes through. Because, man, at first, that's a prayer I just can't utter. I, I just, but, see, this is a lot of what prayer is about is me wrestling through with God. And so I offer forgiveness verbally in prayer. I release the person's situation into God's hands. What, what the word to forgive actually means in the Greek is to remit, to, to take the weight off of someone is what it originally meant. And what it is is I'm taking the weight and the burden that they have to somehow do something back for me, and I'm just giving that up. And I'm just saying I release this person into God's hands. God's going to deal with it in God's time and God's way. And what I want is I want mercy. Because blessed are the merciful, for they shall be shown mercy. You want mercy? Show mercy. And so release that person into God's hands. Now, this does not preclude, let me be very careful, because we've had stuff, you know, the whole Me Too movement right now. Does this mean we don't go to proper authorities and report something like that? No. But what it does mean is rather than me getting angry and boiling over and shouting at them and me trying to plot revenge, I go to the appropriate authority and I take it to them and I say this injustice was done and it should be dealt with. That was, if you want to see Rachel Den Hollander, who's the one that went against uh, Nasser, the guy up at Michigan State, did a great thing at the end when they were actually getting ready to sentence him. She said, because he had brought a Bible in, you know, to try and get stuff, and she said, look, I want you to understand that book you got there in your hands, it speaks of the justice of God against the very things you've done, but it also speaks of the gospel. And I pray you're going to find the gospel. We can do both. Okay, so this is not a statement about a, but it's a statement that I'm not going to take it into my own hands because all I'm going to do is mess it up. But I do turn it over to others. And then finally, we cultivate gentleness over time because in the moment I practice self-control, I walk away, I begin to express forgiveness, receive forgiveness and express forgiveness, but ultimately what I need to do is I need to cultivate gentleness over time. See, the reason that wrath is red is because it's hot. This is a hot emotion. You all know what I'm saying. It literally feels hot, doesn't it, when it, when it rages up. I remember one time I got a phone call from somebody who's just saying something really dumb. I was having a a game, playing a game with the kids, and somebody called me and just went into all this stupid mess and everything, and Linda could see in my skin color, like, oh boy, <laughs> what in the world is going on? And thankfully that day, I actually responded correctly. But man, wrath is hot. What we need is a calm, gentle spirit. 
And the word gentleness and the word meekness and the word humility are all actually related. The same Greek word for gentle is translated sometimes meek and sometimes humility. And what they basically are getting at is it's enduring offenses with patience and restraint. Another definition was actually strength under control. It's not saying that there's no response. I'm, we're not talking about becoming stoic here and having no response, but it's saying I can endure this stuff patiently and there is a control that is going on inside my spirit. And the goal is a spirit that doesn't boil over in wrath, but rather is gentle and kind and compassionate and forgiving. This is the struggle that I went through for years, okay, because my natural spirit was not any of that, okay? My natural spirit was one that was given to vigorous activity back against the person. And so the only progress I've been able to make through the years has had to ultimately get down to this root and say, God, I need some ways of being changed. I'm not going to even practice. This is something that's done over time. I will tell you there are some practical things for me and the mercy and providence of God. When Linda with the rheumatoid arthritis was no longer really able to cook and I started taking over our cooking in the kitchen, I have found cooking to actually be a good practice to help me be more gentle because my natural approach to life is, hey, if they said put it at 300 degrees, nuke that baby at 600 and it'll get there fast. Okay? That's my approach. I literally had my dentist tell me a while back they had to do a procedure because I had brushed all the enamel away because they said, oh my word, what are you doing with your toothbrush? And I'm like, you know, I attacked that bad boy like a hill. That's my natural bent. So things like cooking where it's slow and it's patient have been good for me they've helped develop more of a gentle spirit. And if I start there, I'm not constant. Because see, as long as you've got a wrathful, angry spirit, you are so constantly trying to practice silence and self-control and walk away. And do, it just becomes very hard. We need to get where our spirit is changed. Because God doesn't just say that I'm not an angry God. He says, I'm actually slow to anger. I'm abounding in love. I'm kind. I'm merciful. And we need to ask the Holy Spirit to cultivate that in us. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to come to the Lord's table. And this is a table of God's justice and his mercy. And so today I want to encourage us to confess our own sins to God's justice and receive his mercy and then also pray for him to work that in us. So I want to remind us, as you come to the table, you do not have to be a member of Bay Ridge. You do need to be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, which means in your sin, in your wrath, as you've sat here and listened to this this morning, the answer is not your improvement. The answer is the mercy of God. And your only hope of forgiveness is the mercy of God expressed through Jesus Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection. If you believe that, join us. If you don't, you should let it pass because participating in this meal is a confession i believe that jesus is the only hope of salvation he is my only claim to the mercy of god for what i received from the lord i pass on to you that the lord jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread when he'd given thanks he broke it and he said this is my body which is broken for you do this 
in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out so that your sins may be forgiven. Drink from this, all of you, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Fathers, we come to this table this morning, a table of justice and a table of mercy. Lord, we confess our own sins. And in doing this, Lord, we are professing freely and openly that we have not only sinned, but our only hope of forgiveness and salvation is the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Father, would you receive us and work in us in Jesus' name. Amen. As you get the elements, hold on to them and confess your sins to the Lord and receive his mercy, and we will take them together in just a couple moments. Lord Jesus, as we hold this bread in our hands, we represent, we, we recognize that it is a representation, a symbol of God's justice poured out upon you. Lord, this cross here in our sanctuary is a wash and a flame in red right now because at the cross you bore the wrath of the Father. Lord, every one of our sins deserve complete and utter justice. And in your body on the tree, you have taken the wrath of God for us. Lord, we thank you that in your body you have established justice once and for all. That our sins were not winked at, they were not merely looked past, but you took them you bore them, you bore the penalty for us. And Lord, in taking this bread, we profess that we believe your sacrifice was enough to fulfill justice, to pay for our sins, to set us free from that penalty forever. So we say thanks be to God for the body of our Lord Jesus Christ. Take and eat. And Lord, as we hold the cup, we realize that not only did you bring about justice and pay for our sins, but your blood has brought us under mercy. And Lord, not only was that a past experience, it is a present experience in reality. For Lord, we are told in your word that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and you are just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so, Lord, we thank you for the blood of Christ, which brings us mercy. The blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Abel's blood cried out for justice. But, oh, Jesus, your blood cries out for mercy for us. Mercy over our present sins. And so, Lord, we thank you that whatever our wrath has been, Whatever other sins we have committed in word and thought and deed and attitude and action, that your blood is sufficient to cover it and to cover us with the mercy of Almighty God. So Lord, we say thanks be to God for the blood of Jesus Christ. Take and drink. Spirit of the living God, 
As we have come to this table, we have recognized the justice of God in the past at the cross, the mercy of God given to us presently because of the blood of Christ. And we also recognize that a day will come when there will be final justice and mercy. So Lord, we keep this sacrament until Jesus comes. And Lord, as your people today, we entrust ourselves and we say, oh God, we here confess, freely admit, we're not wise enough nor righteous enough to execute wrath. Lord, we trust you that in your time, in your way, in your manner, to your degree, you will set all things right. But Father, we are grateful that as James, whose letter we were looking at this morning, declares, Lord, mercy triumphs over judgment. Lord, we look forward to that day, not with dread, but with great anticipation. Because we know that in Christ, your mercy has triumphed over justice for us. And so, Father, we commit ourselves into your hands. We trust you. I pray, Lord, this week as we go forth and as we each day are reading and thinking and praying and working over this, Lord, I pray when that moment comes and our ears seem to be stopped up, our tongue is ready to go, and we feel wrath coming on, I pray your Holy Spirit would come upon us. I pray you would speak to us and that we would be quick to unstop our ears and listen. We would keep our mouths closed if need be, and Lord, we would be slow, slow to anger. Lord, knowing that our anger is not going to bring about your righteousness, but that you will in your time and way. Father, we commit ourselves to you. We ask that you would do all of this, empowering us by your Holy Spirit for your glory and our good. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together, and we will conclude with a simple word of benediction from the Apostle Paul. I encourage you to receive it. Receive the grace and mercy of God. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus the Lord be yours in abundance this week. Go forth as instruments in his hand. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.